Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. I am not what you would call an amazing fisherman. My wife says that I don't like fishing. I I like catching, and that's true. I just don't do it very often. Um, Probably the most memorable fishing story that I have, we weren't actually fishing. I probably need to explain that a little bit better. Um, See, I have many, many brothers-in-law. Okay, My, My wife has a big family. I have lots of brothers-in-law, but specifically, I have two twin brother-in-laws. And between the two of them, they come up with some really interesting harebrained schemes. Uh, these guys wanted to go look for treasure in the mountains. They wanted to do lots of different things. Uh, but on one particular morning, they had decided that um, we were going to go shark fishing. Okay? That's okay. Lots of people go shark fishing. Uh, we were at, Ocean, uh, we were at uh, Surfside, uh, we had rented a house, Every, the whole family was there together, and they decided, you know what, we're going to go shark fishing together. But because of who these guys are, they couldn't go fishing in the normal way. Nothing would do. We had to get the, the lure out beyond the breakers. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to carry it out beyond the breakers in a kayak. That's right. You you can already begin to see, okay? So what they did was they went out and they got a piece of chuck shoulder roast, a nice cut of, of nice red meat. They put a great big hook in it, hooked it to some really heavy test line. And then, and then they left it out in the sun for a day so it'd get nice and ripe. And then they got a bucket of chum, which I haven't really worked with before, but it's basically cut up fish to be able to attract the sharks. Okay, this is the idea. So now to get it beyond the breakers, what we're going to do is we're going to get in a kayak. Except when we were at the beach, uh, it was raining. And the surf was up, and there was an undertow, so they couldn't get out past the breakers. Which is where I came in. Me and my other brother-in-law's job was to drag the kayak with my other two brothers-in-law in it and the chunk of meat and the hook and the line through the surf past the undertow out where they could go fishing for sharks. So we get in the water. Now, Andy's two years old at this point, right? I'm, I'm a father. I should know better than this. And, but I'm like, I've got my blood up. So we start dragging this kayak through the surf. And the Surf is crashing over the top of us. The water is cold and it's raining. And we're dragging this stupid kayak out past the breakers and and we're getting swept off of our feet and we're getting tangled up in this heavy-duty test line. What we're doing, by the way, is incredibly dangerous. Like, we could have died kind of dangerous. So we finally get out to where the, the, the water's up to our neck and we can't get any more traction and we just, one more, we just give it a good push and we just stand there and we watch as as the surf and they're paddling as hard as they can 
and the thing's all tangled up and the chum's going out in the water and, and, and we watch as they paddle as hard as they can and the kayak just is this. So it went out about 25 yards and about 200 yards down the beach. That was the... We were on what can best be described as a fool's errand. And as I'm sitting in the water and I'm cold in the rain, risking my life, I'm thinking to myself, there is no fish that I want to catch this bad. (laughs) We watched the video later because, of course, it was videoed. And it was even more ridiculous in the video. Suffice it to say, we caught no sharks that day. But all of us almost died. There are tasks that we take on whose ultimate result is in no way worth the effort that we put forward for it. We call those things wild goose chases, fool's errands. They are things that in retrospect we, re- we, we understand are not worth what we paid for them. In many ways, our story this morning is of one of these kind of tasks. Taking the gospel to city in Antioch was a fool's errand. Let me explain to you why. In chapter 13, we were introduced to Paul and Barnabas and their first missionary journey. They went to Cyprus. It was risky to get on a boat. They got to Cyprus. Many people came to Christ. In fact, the local governor came to Christ. It was a success. And after the success in Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas decided, you know what, we're going we're to double down on our, on our blessing here. and We're going to go and begin to try to open up some of Central Asia. And so we read in chapter 13, verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's the port where the Cypriot governor lived, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, those are just words to us. Right? We read those words whenever we're reading the Bible, and we have no idea what that means. But what we're talking about is on the southern coast of what is now European Turkey, okay? um, in an area that, would be, that it was called by the Romans Galatia. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because there's a book of the Bible called the Letter to the Galatians. Okay? This is where Paul is. He is going into a place called Galatia. Now, it's called Galatian because uh, tribes, people out of Europe called the Gauls had settled in there over the last couple of hundred years. So these are warlike, aggressive people who are living in an austere and dangerous land. The land that they're going into is heavily mountain. There's lots of streams. They get to Perga in Pamphylia. And something odd happens. John Mark, and this is very cryptic, we have this very short word, it says John Mark left them and went to Jerusalem. And while we don't really understand why John Mark left, what we do know is it was deeply, deeply distressing to Paul and Barnabas. We know that because later on, there's crisis in this missionary team when Barnabas wants to take John Mark again with him. And and Paul says, no, I I don't want to take this guy because he abandoned us in Galatia. 
So there's something going on there. We're not really sure what's going on. We're not really sure why he left. But we think probably part of the reason was the next journey that they were about to take was incredibly dangerous. We read they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Again, this is one of those confusing things. If you, if you think to yourself, but they just came from Antioch, you'd be right. They came from a city called Antioch, going to another city called Antioch. In the ancient world, there was actually a lot of cities called Antioch, just like there were a lot of cities called Alexandria. That's because there was a famous kin, king named Antiochus, and if you wanted to curry favor with him and get extra money for your town, you called it Antioch, and you got some extra money. So the town that they're going to is called Pisidian Antioch. Now, Pisidian Antioch was about 100 miles north of the place that they landed. But it was 100 miles of mountain, deep ravines, ice-cold rivers that they had to cross. This was a dangerous journey. It was in an area that was frequented by brigands and bandits and rebels, people that would waylay passengers along the way. So they are taking an incredibly dangerous journey, going to a group of people that, why would you go and bring the, the gospel to them when there's lots of other people you could bring the gospel to that didn't require a 100-mile journey through the mountains? And so there's some thought that John Mark didn't want to take that journey, and so he went back to Jerusalem. Regardless of the reason, Paul and Barnabas make their way to city in Antioch, and they find themselves in a major city there, and they begin to work in the local synagogue. Now, it's interesting, the, the, the verbiage that's used here. They, they went into the synagogue, and the local Jews asked them this. They said, do you have a word of comfort that you can bring us? They were local population there, and they wanted to hear a word from this traveling Jewish rabbi named Paul. And so Paul stands up, and he delivers what we believe is probably his standard message to the Gentiles. In the book of Antioch, we have these different sermons. We get to hear sermons by Peter, we get to hear sermons by Stephen, and now we get to hear a sermon by Paul. And it's important when we read this to realize every place that, that Paul ministered, this is the message that he probably delivered. This is the message that he gives. He begins like Peter and like Stephen, by giving this sketch, this, this historical sketch of Israel. He says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So far, so good. This is the type of Jewish history that they love to hear. This is, in fact, a word of encouragement. It is reminding the people of all of the blessings that God has laid out for them. He rescued them from Egypt. He selected them as a people. He kept them in the desert. Even when they fell away from him, he brought them back. When they went into the land, he drove the peoples out from before them. When they asked for a king, he gave them a king. When that king failed, he gave them a better king. God is faithful to his people. This is the message that Paul is delivering to them. 
Right? So he moves from this general history down to a specific part of that history. He begins to talk about King David. Right? Still, we're on good terms. Everybody can agree. This is encouraging. And when he had removed, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my arm, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Right? So he's connecting Jewish history through David to the Messiah. Saying, look, this is the, the promised son of David. God kept his way. He was faithful in the past. He's keeping his promises now in Jesus. He finishes with the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Who serves as this kind of connecting file between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finished his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? Am I not he no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. It's interesting that he includes this part about John the Baptist here. We think that John, the ministry of John the Baptist had spread even this far, even further into Europe. People were talking about John the Baptist. We know that they're going to come across communities where people have been baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist. Right, so he's beginning to tie all of this stuff together. Still. So far, so good. Word of encouragement, encouragement delivered. He moves from the faithfulness of God to the promises that God has made. We see these reoccurring arguments from the Old Testament that Paul and Peter and Stephen all kind of play into, they all kind of use, right? God uh, promised somebody who would be like David and uh, and this son of David would be greater than David, and he would, be, he would reign over his people forever. Everybody's expecting this. Everybody knows this is coming. Now comes the hook, though. Now comes the climax. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed, and everything from which you could not be freed by the laws of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe in, even if one tells it to you. See, the good news is that through Jesus, the Messiah, the people can have forgiveness of sins. It's not just temporary forgiveness. It's not like the Day of Atonement where you would go and sacrifice a goat and put the sins on another goat and send it out in the wilderness. It's not this one-time-per-year thing. This is the once-for-all forgiveness that had been prepared for. This is the Passover that will be unlike any other Passover. This is amazing. This is the forgiveness of the people's sins, the salvation of Israel. But there's some bad news in there, right? The bad news is that the salvation has to be responded to. Salvation is at hand, and it is their birthright as the descendants of Abraham, but they have to accept and believe. They must be careful that they don't that they're not like the leaders in Jerusalem who reject the gospel. They must be careful that they do not perish. Well, this isn't quite as uplifting a message as maybe the Jews were hoping for, but they still responded 
with incredible enthusiasm. Right? As they're leaving the building, we read, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath, right? As a pastor, just so you know, if I ever give a sermon and somebody's like, wow, that was amazing, you should totally preach that same thing next Sunday, that makes you feel really good, okay? Just, I just want to let you guys know that. Not that I'm asking for compliments, but if you have them, I'm not averse to them, Okay? And so they leave this place, they're like, dude, you're awesome, you need to come back, please bring another message like that. It was amazing, mind-blowing message, so good. But then there's some other people who, that's not enough. We read that after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul, right? So you have a group of devout Jews, people that are, that are deeply religious, and then another group of people that are Gentiles that have converted to Judaism who follow after Paul, and they're like, seriously, I, we need more. What is the implications of this? Tell me some more about this. I, I, I want to know. What, what does God have for us as a people? And so Paul and Barnabas begin to urge them to continue in the grace of God. Well, this is really good. This makes the journey worthwhile, right? All hundred miles of climbing up mountains, even the problem that they had with John Mark, the people are responding to the word. This looks like it's going to be another Cyprus where the, where the, the Jews have turned to Christianity and accepted him. Paul and Barnabas have preached the gospel of grace to them and the fulfillment of the law. And it's resonating. But there's another aspect of their message that is going to become even more compelling. See, they're talking about the fulfillment of Israel, but they're also talking about bringing the Gentiles in. They're talking about how the grace of Christ will extend to the Gentiles, not as Gentiles who become Jews, but as Gentiles who simply accept Jesus Christ. This message begins to catch hold, and it begins to burn through the population of this city, and people start hearing about it from their friends. They start hearing about this man who's come from Jerusalem to preach the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Well, now what was kind of a a little bonfire turns into a raging firestorm. We read that the next Sabbath, almost the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Man! Again, if you're a pastor, we're not supposed to be excited when you have lots of numbers in the room, right? We're supposed to preach the same way whether there's nobody in the room or the room is full, but Can I tell you a secret? It's so much better when the room is full. Probably shouldn't have said that. But it is. It super is. So the whole city shows up. The whole city. All the Gentiles are there. This is success. This is what every evangelist, every pastor hopes for. This makes the journey worth it. But then something bad begins to happen. 
See, the, the Jews from the synagogue were excited when the message was for the Jews. They were excited when the message was the fulfillment of Judaism. But now, there's all these other folks that have showed up. People who are pagans, who eat unclean foods, and who worship demon gods are, are here with them. And these people who the Jews believe are fundamentally unclean, whose very presence makes them unclean just by proximity. Now, now they're listening to this guy. And this guy is beginning to talk about how all can join the kingdom of God. That everybody who accepts Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ can be part of the kingdom of God. And this special privileged status that they have as the children of Abraham doesn't seem to mean that much. And something wicked begins to take hold in their hearts. Something dark begins to bubble up. We read that they become jealous. Jealous for their status as God's children. Jealous for their separateness from the people around them. And this jealousy begins to poison them. And this poison begins to bubble up. And this man that they had accepted, who they had begged to come back, they begin to contradict. They begin to shout things out from the crowd. Now, again, as a pastor, we love it. I love it when I get amens, right? Preach-ons, go on, brothers, any of those, any of those things, preach on, preach it, amen, those are good. JR, good, okay? Love it. When we start getting heckled from the crowd, that's a different story. That, it's hard to preach when people are heckling you from the crowd. You get little dirty looks, little little eye raises, little rolled eyes, you know, clutching your pearls, starting to shout stuff out from the back, starting to criticize, and like this stuff begins to, breaks up your rhythm. And these people begin to openly dispute with Paul. They begin to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, right? They begin to say things about Jesus that aren't true. They contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They oppose him because they don't like the implications of the message that he's bringing. And this is really important, guys. As we talk about evangelism, everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. Buddhists love Jesus. Muslims love Jesus. Jewish people love Jesus. Secular commentators love Jesus. Old German philosophers, everybody loves Jesus. Jesus is easy to love as long as you don't actually listen to the things that he says. Right? Everybody loves the gospel. They don't like the implications of the gospel. And when the implications of the gospel begin to come out, when we begin to actually act like the gospel is real and true and has the ability to influence our life, that's when opposition begins to come up. Everybody likes, hey, forgive your neighbor, hey, love the poor. But when you begin to talk about the need to evangelize or you begin to talk about the need to live a holy life or you begin to talk about the need to live every day, sacrificing yourself and dying on the cross for 
the world, that's when people begin to resist. It's when people begin to throw stones, contradict. Paul and Barnabas are faced with this uprising against them and they respond to the jealousy of the Jews not with shouts, not with criticism. They turn their mission to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. I said, hey, no harm, no foul. You don't want this grace? That's cool. These guys apparently do. We're just going to go over here. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. By the way, this is from the Old Testament talking about what Israel is supposed to be doing. Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel is supposed to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's a veiled barb at them saying, this is what you're supposed to be doing. But you don't want to do it? That's cool. We're going to go over here. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. See, Paul tells them that it was necessary for him to go to the Jews, but when they rejected him, he moved on to the Gentiles. This will begin to be his pattern throughout his ministry. He will go to a town, he'll go to the synagogue, he'll preach the gospel. When they reject him, he'll set up a church right next door and begin to work among the Gentiles. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. How different this is from Cyprus. In Cyprus, the Jews responded. And in Cyprus, the local government responded well. The governor came to Christ. They left as heroes. Everybody wanted to eat with them. But here, the Jews have instigated Devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. They rode them out of town on a rail. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Antioch mission ends ultimately on a mixed note of both opposition and success. On the one hand, the gospel is well received by the Gentiles. On the other hand, it is totally rejected by the Jews in the town. We know that later on, we're going to hear that this same group of people from city in Antioch is going to follow Paul. They're going to work in the churches that Paul plants to sow dissension and problems. They're going to question the freedom of the gospel. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. He's writing a letter to his churches telling them what salvation by faith through grace looks like. It's mixed. 
The opposition is strong. Paul and Barnabas are driven out of the district. They've broken up their group. They took a dangerous, arduous path to a place that ended up being hostile. And in the end, they have to leave the city in a hurry. Compared to their ministry in Cyprus, they are failures. And their errand has been foolish. And we need to understand this. Paul was not always successful as a missionary and a church planter. Okay? Paul went to places where he was utterly rejected. Often his efforts seem foolish, like a waste of time, lives, and money. And we need to understand that this, in many ways, is the heart of the gospel enterprise. Evangelism, brothers and sisters, is a fool's errand. It requires huge amounts of effort. It comes at great risk, and very often it comes back unsuccessful. Because at the end of the day, the gospel is offensive to most of the people that hear it. And yet, while the gospel and evangelism are a fool's errand, they are necessary. They are always necessary. Paul is on a fool's errand, but that's okay because he is a fool for Christ. He doesn't do the things that he's doing because he wants the acclaim or because he wants the success. He does them because he's following orders. Because that's what he's been told to do. He steps out in faith to do the things that God has called him to do. He takes the dangerous road to city in Antioch to share the gospel with a group of Jews in their synagogue only to be run out of town by an angry mob. Because it is no less foolish than for God to send his son to a group of people that he knows are going to crucify them. It's no less foolish than to save a group of ungrateful people from slavery in Egypt only to have them reject you in the desert. The love of God is extravagant beyond comprehension. And evangelism is powered by that ridiculous, extravagant love. Brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel is a fool's errand, but we are all called to be fools for Christ and to take that up. I want you to understand this, because so often we have this idea that, well, if we just go share our faith, everything's going to turn out okay, and the first time we face setbacks, we stop doing it. We think to ourselves, well, we must be doing something wrong. Surely, if I had done this the right way, if I had gone to the right class, if I'd read the right thing, then this person would have responded. The gospel is apparently something that only truly expert people can share. I'm just going to step back and let the professionals do it. Brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel is something that we are all called to do because we are all called to be fools for Christ. Sharing the gospel is foolish because it's dangerous. 
It was dangerous to go to city in Antioch. It was dangerous to go to Cyprus. And it is dangerous for each of you to go share your faith. There are people in this room here, if you share your faith, you could lose your job. Many of you are in families where if you share your faith, your family members will ignore you. Or even worse, break off relations with you. The gospel is dangerous. Often it requires that we go places that are outside of our comfort zones and do things that are outside of what we believe is safe. Sharing the gospel means associating with people that are not safe. We talked about this last week. In two weeks we're going to go under the bridge to go share the gospel with a community of homeless people. Before any of you ask me, no, it's not safe. Literally anything can happen there. We've had all kinds of stuff happen there. We've had naked people, there have been people that fought, naked people that fought, all kinds of stuff. That's not true, we've never had naked people fight. We don't go there because it's safe. We go there because it's the command of God. When we go to Peru, we don't go to Peru because it's safe. We go to Peru because it's the command of God. When missionaries leave San Antonio and go to Iraq, they don't go there because it's safe. They go there because it's the command of God. The gospel is foolish because it is not safe, but we are called to be fools for Christ. We are called to do things that are unsafe for the kingdom of God. The gospel is foolish because it's not always successful. It would be one thing if we were asked to do dangerous things at great cost and personal expense because they always returned successful. Now, I want to tell you this. The gospel is way more successful and way more well-received than what we think. I am constantly surprised when I share my faith with somebody when they come back and believe. I shouldn't be, but, but it's always like, whoa, this happened? Like, seriously? That's awesome. But whether you're successful or not, the thing we need to understand is the success is not up to us. We are responsible for the message, not the reception of the message. There is a line in this story in Acts It's very telling. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Brothers and sisters, belief in Christ involves so much more than what we're doing. It is our job to deliver the message God is the one who changes human hearts. He is the one that affects the soil of the people's hearts so that they accept and they hear and they believe. And I I think, guys, I really believe that if we accepted that, if we understood that when somebody rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting us, we would share the gospel more. If we really believed that God was the one that brought the increase, it would take all of the pressure off of us 
when we share our faith. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. We have been called to a fool's errand. We have been told by Jesus Christ that our job is to go into the world and make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching them everything that he commanded. But brothers and sisters, while that errand is foolish, it is completely necessary and it is empowered by the same God who elicited conversions from most of the Gentile population of this incredibly hostile area. It is empowered by the same Jesus Christ and the same Holy Spirit that empowered the message to go through Cyprus. It's empowered by the same Holy Spirit that converted thousands in Jerusalem. The same Holy Spirit that will empower and protect Paul and give him the energy to endure persecution imparts us, lives inside us. We stand in a direct line with these apostles who took the foolish gospel to the world. Brothers and sisters, if we will grab a hold of that mission, we will see God work in amazing ways. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a fool's errand and we need to be about the business of being foolish. We need to pick up that fool's errand and carry it. Brothers and sisters, some of you in this room have never accepted this foolish gospel. Some of you in this room have no idea who Jesus Christ is. Or worse, you think you know him, but you don't really. I want to tell you that this same Jesus Christ who saved the Jews, who offered them the free gift of grace, this same Jesus Christ who made it available for Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God, he is offering to you that same salvation today. You can have a relationship with Christ. But just as the Jews had to turn to him, so you must turn to him today and make a decision to accept him. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have questions about this, if you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, I would ask you to come forward so that we can pray with you, that we can tell you what the gospel is. If you don't have a church home, I would encourage you to come forward. We'll meet with you and tell you how you can join this one. As I say, every single Sunday, we are not perfect. But we are a group of people who are deeply committed to taking the gospel, the foolish gospel, to an even more foolish world. Maybe you just need somebody to pray for you this morning. If you do, 
If there is something that is overwhelming your life, something that you cannot handle, something that is just breaking you down, come forward. We will pray with you. We'll gather around you. I don't know where you are this morning. But in a moment, I would ask you to bring your burdens forward and lay them at the foot of the cross. Please stand with me as we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.